Welcome to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My guest today is Victoria Macavidi. Victoria is a fellow UDRP panelist and a lawyer with a very rich experience across large international law firms, and most recently, her boutique law firm, Macavidi's. In this episode, she talks to us about how she got into the law, the challenges of running a boutique practice, and why she decided to focus on issues related to media, journalism, and technology, among others. Take a listen. Hello, Victoria. Thank you for accepting my invitation. Uh, I remember we met uh, two years ago, exactly, like around these dates. How are you? I'm very well. Um, thank you for inviting me. It's absolutely my pleasure. Um, like I said earlier, I'm a great admirer of your project, <laughs> and um, I think it's wonderful that you have the urge to make original content and although I tend to be a little bit private if I can be um, you know it's it's just an honor to be asked and I'm so happy to participate um, no of course uh, before I was heading to this trip I, I was thinking I should call Victoria and maybe she she'll accept so thank you uh, you You've lived everywhere in the world, no? Well, not everywhere. Um, I think I must um, have a wandering spirit or something. But I, uh, I've lived in New York. I've lived in London. I've lived in Hong Kong. I've lived in Brussels and uh, and Rome. So it's quite a few places. Um, everybody's traveling a lot these days. I don't think it makes me unique. Um, but it's it's so nice to go to a different culture. You know, you can reinvent yourself. Um, you learn so many new things. It's good to stay adaptable, I think, too. Yeah. Um, you know, fr fr from the point of view of being a lawyer, um, I've admitted in a couple of jurisdictions, I found it really interesting, for example, to take the New York bar because I'd already been practicing for about 10 years. And I don't know if you know this, but all the English colonies, they took English law as at their date of independence. Yeah. So uh, you, all you're doing is looking to see what's changed. How did they solve problems differently? And, for example, with the States, they solve problems very differently than English law. Or yeah. I mean, England, Canada, Australia, New Zealand tend to do things in a very They're similar, similar, yeah, but the similar US way. Different. And the U.S. is totally different. Um, so, yeah, like it's, you know, that's a wonderful thing about traveling from a knowledge perspective. You know, you, know, you can look in a sort of perpendicular kind of way or a parallel way, horizontal way is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, I think it gives you a little bit of an insight. Uh, and why do you think this is? Is there something that motivates this, uh, like just uh, your motivation to learn about new cultures? Where does it come from? I, I, I suppose so. I think... Um, Actually, like the artist, I think I have an artistic <laughs> personality too. Yes, I think you do. And I think that, that actually, and I do think of myself as like, I know this sounds going to sound a bit arrogant, but the, the, the lawyer as, the artist as lawyer. Yeah, do you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Because yeah, yeah, no, it's like, I feel like my practice, it's kind of handmade. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I do most of my work myself. I mean, I work with a lot of other professionals and I work alongside people and what have you. But um, yeah, it's a small handmade practice, you know. Um, and part of the reason that I love having my own practice is that I can just, you know, if I, if something new 
area of interest comes up, I can run after it. Yeah. So there's the ability to constantly change. You know, and I started as a commercial litigator and then I did a lot of soft IP and then I picked up arbitration and then I was in New York when the internet bubble was going on and I was like, I want to be an internet lawyer. And then I t- picked up proper media law, you know, then the human rights comes. Anyway, you can, you know, so I'm switching jurisdiction, I'm switching country, I'm switching area of law. You've just got to keep life interesting, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, Constant yeah. change, yeah. you know? Otherwise I get bored. I see. Know? Uh, but you're originally from New Zealand. I was born in New Zealand, and I studied in New Zealand, my undergraduate. Yeah. Um, and uh, worked there in one of the giant law firms for about five years. And in then New I, Zealand. And, and then I went abroad. And all my generation, you know, everybody went to do this overseas experience. Um, Is that common in New Zealand? It's common, but most of the rest of them go home. <laughs> After the experience. But I just forgot to go home. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I really settled anywhere either. Um, and it's still my home in some ways, you know, in my mind's eye. Um, anyway, the world's changed. You know, it's so much easier to live in other cultures. Yeah. And uh, where did you become a lawyer? Um, I think that um, I was torn between journalism and law. Uh, I thought journalism would be far too competitive I think that's amusing now because the law is pretty competitive too. Um, how does anyone decide to be a lawyer? I think that we're all recruited by television programs. Ah, were you? And then you have I, to say... I, I was like that, but I, I didn't know it affected others yeah. the same way. And then you have to talk to everyone about what generation were they, which programs were they, you know. Like some people say LA Law and, you know, my generation, they, well, first of all, there was the... the When I, even when I was a young child, I used to love this British program called Crown Court. Uh-huh. I was fascinated by it, and I used to love to be sick, pretend I was sick so I could stay home and watch Crown Court. <laughs> you know, it was just this, and it was a scary old British kind of justice, you know. And then we had the paper chase, which yeah, is Yeah, of course, a, a, famous. A movie. it was a movie. They made it into a movie later on. Huh? I think that's right. There was a pilot maybe, and then the series, yeah, yeah. but there was that. Um, L.A. Law and so forth, when I was studying, they were on. Ellie McBeal came after that. I mean... For me, it was Ellie McBeal and The Practice. Now that David E. Kelly was like one of David E. Kelly, and also on the side of literature, if you can, yeah, I think you can call it like that. John Grisham, those two were my motivation for me. <laughs> Absolutely, um, I think the, the next generation are already being recruited by Suits, right? Yeah, I mean, even uh, even now, I, I watch it religiously. But what I was gonna say is that I became a lawyer also because of those influences. But then as a lawyer, I realized that the law was nothing like those shows. Was that also your, <laughs> <laughs> your case? Absolutely. I mean, to be honest, I mean, especially as a young lawyer, I mean, it was terrifying because, you know, I worked in firms where it's very different elsewhere. I mean, we were just, you know, they just push you out of the nest. Hmm. It's sink or swim. We weren't really trained, to be honest. It was just... Will you implode with the stress and the pressure? And, you know, in some ways, I think that's the only way you learn anything. You know, you've, it's your responsibility. And um, it was totally different. There was so much that you had to learn in the first couple of years of practice yeah. that even the simplest thing required an enormous amount of reading and understanding. 
I'm sure that's probably changed now. I mean, first of all, we could, I think the law has, is simplifying yeah. because we just all work differently now. No one can be bothered going to find the old cases. And I don't know. Every well, time... I remember when I was in law school, we had to memorize the, the law. And that was what the, te the professors expected. Now, I don't think it's the case anymore. All open book, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, you know, there used to be these funny old doctrines in English law. And I mean, and I was a little bit of a, a little bit academically inclined, and, and I used to enjoy burrowing back. But I mean, now I would never have the patience to really follow something through, and I would get a barrister to perhaps do that work. Um, but actually, I think you even see that the courts behaving in the same way. They're yeah. like, they look and they realize it's some incredibly complicated, nuanced rule, set of rules, and they're like, time for a fresh start. <laughs> you know, I think, um, I don't know, maybe we just, just, these legal systems have matured. People feel less, less bound by precedent, and it used to be a very big deal in the old days, Lord Denning and so forth, you know, mm. remember, um, to depart from precedent and make a new ruling and to step out of life. Original thinking was itself highly suspect, wasn't yeah, it, right? Yeah, yeah. That's all gone, thank God. So, I mean, you know, for example, I remember it was only in about my third job that I got a computer. But I mean, you know, when I started my first job, they still had like gestetners and things and, oh, you know, telex and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, so it's been quite a transition period. I think I started practicing in 1989. Um, yeah, 1989. I think that's right. So, you know, there's been obviously an enormous tech technological change in that period. And I think that's impacted the practice enormously. And there's just so much more of that to come. I think it, it compressed and now like it happens way faster, but it's still happening like for students who are graduating now and who will be entering into practice like in the next couple of years. Uh, I'm interested in listening a bit about, so you work for uh, big law firms and now you have your own practice. That's right. How do you see that? Uh, what are the differences? What are... Um. I mean, it's wonderful to have that training of the big firm, and, uh, and, but it was a bit like working for an investment banking firm today. I mean, you just worked all the time, you know, mm. and uh, it was a lot of pressure, um, but also great experience and fantastic training and good people to work for and all that sort of thing. So it was really good. Um, you know, the big firms, in my opinion, and that's not going to be true for all of them, but they tended to... The, you know, they were, they were in, certainly in New Zealand when I started, they were generalists. Yeah. I think that's still true in some of the practices. Um, in the UK, for example, the libel bar, for, and I do defamation work, yeah. which I really enjoy, it's highly specialised. There's only about four or five firms that do claimant libel work that are regarded as you know, good at it. Um, so specialisation often happens in those smaller firms. And to specialize, you have to keep doubling down on your, on your specialty. Whereas in a bigger environment, the pressure is, you know, in a way financial, and they want to keep you billing. So you're going to get dragged off your specialty all the time. You may mm. never make it back. You know, cases can take a very long time, and then something else comes in, and you have to put the firm first, not your own. So in some ways, um, you know, I have my own practice so that I can specialize. Um, it's much, much harder than you think. And, and even in the time that I, since I took up defamation law, which I started doing defamation in about what, 2005, you know, um, there was a new act in 2013. There was the Reynolds defense. I mean, 
a lot of the cases just it, the work just disappeared you know because the 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 thresholds went up okay so, you know for example so you can see enormous dramatic changes in the small one practice area um you know that's 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 how practice is things evolve and change um, you know i didn't feel i could really specialize and i really wanted to do speech related work um so that's one of the reasons also i think you know big firms you know you can it's a young person who worked very long hours and I worked in American firms so you know now I like the fact that I work around my self it works around me I mean I say that but I do you know I do at least a nine to five day every day that I'm working um, which is you know every day basically I mean when you have your own practice you're always on in a way and that's fine because you have a much different relationship with your work it's your, they're your it's clients your, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's your practice it's your work it's your money etc so you never really resent the phone call or email um, it's totally different it's not an intrusion but uh, what what were some things that you learned working for a law firm like a big law firm that you still use or on a daily basis or is there nothing that you can um I mean, I think that um, the luxury in those firms is that you can become, that you can be quite an academically focused lawyer um, and that you can really burnish your skills to a certain extent and that money and even the budget for the case isn't necessarily the object because the firm has its own standards. So you often do things to a very, very high, you were taught to do things to a very high standard. You're working with incredibly You don't realize this until you get out of the law and do other things. Um, when I started doing a bit of stuff at ICANN and things, I realized that you know, meetings with non-lawyers are quite different experiences than meetings with lawyers, for yeah. example. No, no one has, like I said earlier, I never have any meetings these days if I can help it <laughs> because um, I don't think they're a very efficient uh, use yeah. of time and everything's by email or, or a phone call. But um, if you are going to have a meeting, you know, we're very linear thinkers aren't we? Lawyers. Exactly. <laughs> and you realize that you've kind of been really spoiled and then you get into normal meetings and it can feel very circular and it can feel long-winded and what have you. And you realize that you've just been in a very particular kind of environment and you've been very fortunate to have that experience. It can make you very impatient. Mm. Um, it's taken me a long time to, you know, I think um, become more patient. And also if you... Now, these are grumbles, aren't they? But if you, if you work in those big environments, you can become very specialized. I mean, you don't have to do anything except your job and maybe only a small part of the case. Um, that's an upside, but also possibly a downside. You, you have to, I think for young lawyers, they need to be very careful in those environments to put all the skills back together and make sure they've got the whole picture. Because often you're working on enormous cases And, you know, they're quite happy to leave people doing just one part of it. Yeah. Somebody does the barrister's role. Somebody does the senior solicitor's role. Somebody does this. Somebody does that. That's all very well. You need to be the full lawyer. You need to be able to do that whole thing yourself in every aspect of it. Um, I think some of the firms aren't necessarily as conscious of their responsibility to young people about putting those skills back together, making sure they turn a full, wholly rounded lawyer. Um, So I think that's a bit different. Um, but at the same time, 
you know, when you have your own firm, I mean, you know, I do a lot of my own IT. You know, you know, I, I do, I do my own VAT. You know, um, I think these things have got to be good for me because, you know, it stretches you. You get so used to just doing your job. I think it's, it's, it's a real challenge being outside your comfort zone, having to learn new things, and and also when you were, in, I don't know if this was the case, but when you were in these big law firms, you didn't really think of this as a business, or or did you? And now you have it's, to think from both perspectives, the business a, and the legal... This is a very good point. I was thinking the other day about this. Um, I don't think I ever saw... I must. I mean, I suppose I must have seen a bill. I don't think I ever issued... I don't think I was ever responsible in any of my jobs for issuing bills or generating bills. And actually, I think agreeing price... It's, it is very important to see the that you're offering a service for a price that you are in business that in a way you're commodity you're offer, you know selling a commodity you know um, and negotiating the price dealing with client reactions um, you know dealing with all aspects of the financial relationship between you and the client that's actually really empowering and a very important thing and um, Yeah, in a big firm, you'll ne well, it takes a very long time before you're anywhere yeah. near that. And I think that is detrimental. Um, and they don't teach that in law school. And they don't, they don't teach it anywhere. Um, yeah. uh, that's right. Um, and actually, to be perfectly honest, I've learned some of that stuff from my own clients. I have one fantastic client. Um, she has her own design and branding agency. And um, she's a very successful businesswoman. But watching her negotiate with me set the price you know watching her manage that relationship um, actually was very informative watching other professionals this is the other thing I learned when I set up my own practice you know when you have a, when you're working for a big firm it, it has all the boundaries but I mean when it's just you you have to create and enforce your boundaries yourself and I mean no one causes issues for big firms so there aren't any issues do you know what I mean no one yeah. takes on a big law firm unless they've got very deep pockets and what have you but when you're a small player you can have issues of all kinds um, you have to be much more focused and present and thinking about all those things um, yeah. So, yeah it's it's very I think it's very useful um, so I think you know You could go back into the, if you went back into the big firm after the small firm environment, you know, you'd go back in as a much more business-minded lawyer, which, I mean, it's helpful, obviously, to run your own little business when you're dealing with clients who run small businesses. I mean, you just truly, truly understand them and, you know, their concerns. But uh, initially when you made that decision to go solo practitioner, it must have been scary, wasn't it? Um, it, I suppose so. Um, yeah, I don't think um, I don't think I no. I did think it was going to be for for, for the rest of my career. Um, and I remember when I was setting everything up, I writing myself a little yellow sticky, going, "This is a you know twenty seven year plan." You know, like what I'm doing now, I plan because the whole idea is I can always do this. I might like to do other things, you know, as well. I might do some voluntary work or be on a board or something like that but that, that I will always have my practice and um, I think that's good because a lot of people in the big firms, a lot of my colleagues who stayed in those environments um, unfortunately the big firms often like to let other people move up 
and about, at about 50, some of the English big firms will push on their partners. Mm-hmm. And that's quite young. 15, um, yeah. I mean, you know, from a US perspective, the bigger American, I mean, depends what city you're in, but I mean, the, some of the better years of your professional life would be between 50 and 70, you know, like that would be the best time. So it's an unusual approach, the English approach. But at the same time, if you look at those roles, arguably they've become, a lot of those people are administrators, they're really managing departments. Are they really lawyers and have they stayed lawyers? Some of them will have, some of them won't have. So it very much depends. I mean, no one size fits all now, I think. Um, it's also a bit different in litigation um, because I'm a tradition, you know, originally a litigator. Um, you know, we have the barristers and then the solicitors. So mm. within the the firms are mainly solicitors, and so you can get very removed from the actual. People can get very removed from the cases, in a way. Um, so many different models, though. This uh, situation of, of the English law firms, is that something that has always been the case or was it due to the crisis in Chuda? Because uh, the, the law practice changed like, I don't know, like 10 years ago with the, the crisis. A lot of big companies started to become a bit more controlling about how the legal fees were managed and... I guess this changed a lot, and is this why this happened? Um, I think that's right. I mean, I started my practice before the um, financial crisis, mm. and thank God I started it because it might have been much harder afterwards. Yeah. But um, actually, the crisis did bring a big change, and a lot of boutique firms started at that time. And you know, maybe in a small way, a lot of people started boutiques, but eventually, you know, you could, they can be very profitable boutique firms. Um, for example, a lot of the if you look at the arbitration practices, a lot of the a lot of the senior people left the big firms they created their own. to cre- create yeah. their own boutiques. I mean, they had fewer conflicts. Yeah. You know, very annoying to land a big job and then be told you've got a conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, they get to keep much more of the pie, right? And they're not having to pay to maintain these infrastructure. Yeah, exactly, yeah. very expensive buildings and uh, payrolls and all that sort of thing. So, um, you know. Anyway, it's good to see this liberalisation in the market. You know, it's been, it's been a fairly illiquid and um, illiberal kind of market for a long time. Believe it or not, the US, I think, is even, has been even less um, flexible in the past. You know, people used to make partner at one firm and stay there their whole career. Mm. Um, it was only quite late that they started having lateral movements, and it didn't, didn't come naturally. Um, anyway... The whole industry is being disrupted. We now see all kinds of different models, and I think that's good. You know, it's got to be good for the consumer. Yeah. Because the big issue was certainly everywhere, but in the UK particularly, and certainly the government's regulatory focus is: can the man in the street afford legal services? And the answer is pretty much no. That's true. Uh, I get a lot of friends who ask uh, question, legal questions. They expect a free answer because I'm a friend. <laughs> But I don't know if they even understand that they can go and hire a lawyer. Like they, For the regular individual, it, it's, uh, it's daunting to, to think about it. 
I think that's right. Um, and you certainly couldn't have any legal problems. I mean, it would be ruinous. To, you know, it's almost ruinous. And the risks, because we have the loser pays um, the other side's costs, it's yeah. ruinous to lose. And, I mean, you know, even ordinary middle class or upper middle class people or professionals, you know, they would be risking their homes and things like that. So, you know, that's almost Dickensian. Yeah. Um, and I think the government's been very focused on trying to drive regulation into the sector and to disrupt the sector in the UK because it would not reform itself. Um, and that's why they've been increasing their, their liberalising routes into the profession and they're also um, driving competition in. You don't have to be regulated now. So the public can have a choice between the regulated and the unregulated. It's all about transparency. Um, I think this is arguably good. Um, that let, that let the market decide, I suppose. Yeah. At the same time, I think you know there's also good things to be said about the European, you know, the traditional European approach. Um, but then the practices are smaller, they're more affordable, you know, maybe they didn't suffer some of the... As the law becomes more corporate, you know, it, that's perhaps where some of the issues arise. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's constantly evolving. It's, it's been an interesting time to, to be in the profession. And, I mean, yes, what's coming next? I don't know. Uh, another aspect I wish to hear your thoughts on is, uh, I mean, you talked about like the administration part of the of the your solo practice, but what about uh, getting new business? Uh, that's a whole area on itself. Well, um, from my, I mean, the thing is, I think um, everybody has a different way of doing it. If you're specialized. A lot of firms will send you stuff that they can't do, and then you can try and send them back stuff that you can do, uh, that they can do. Um, so there's that. I mean, for me, it's all about your network, you know. And for a long time, I would go to a lot of things um, to network. You know, just go. I think the best kind of marketing is just word of mouth referrals and recommendations from existing clients um, or other most of my work comes from other lawyers you know they know that I do something in particular and they will send something to me uh, and I try and you know return the favor um, you know work comes when you least expect it I don't think it works to I mean I, I go to industry things and I speak at things because I'm interested myself you know um, So that's just, it's, if, if it's natural and organic, I think it works beautifully, you know? Um, and that's the, the best way to generate work. Follow your interests, you know, focus on the things, the areas that you find very interesting. So for me, it was things about domain names, uh, the developing law of the internet. Um, you know, I would go to all kinds of events around these sort of things, start up an entrepreneurial culture and tech companies and, and so forth. Um, yeah, then the work will hopefully follow. But is it uh, on a steady level or there's ups and downs and you have to deal, how do you deal with those? Um, I've been going for about 11 years now. So um, to be honest, um, you know, having a small business, it's a, you, sometimes in the beginning, um, I felt a bit like an actress. You know, when the phone stops, you, you're terrified it'll never <laughs> ring again, you know. Um, but so actually, like artistic side of somehow it does <laughs> ring. And somehow, I'm, I mean, somehow... It, it continues, you know. Um, I don't usually have periods without 
you know, being mm. busy. So um, if anything, my issues now are... You're too busy. <laughs> I'm too busy. And how do I scale? And, you know, I don't want to become a manager. So this is the last thing I want. So how am I going to scale without that happening? And what kind of, you know, what kind of people would I like to work with? And what, in what, which directions would it make sense to expand the practice? Um, and then, as one of my old bosses said, you know, going into partnership with someone it's like getting married it's a very big decision and it's very important you share similar values I think it's important you share similar values about the work and also about money people have very different ideas often about money just because of the way they've been raised um, so shared values are often really important um, yeah uh, I'm also interested in hearing a bit about your work with defamation law. I think that this is a, well, it's an area I don't know much about, but uh, I think this is an area more uh, in the common law tradition. I, I don't know if it, uh, I mean, I am aware it exists, but I think that the one area, that, as many areas that common law is leading, are there any differences between the approach in a common law uh, way to civil law in, in defamation? Um, it's interesting you say that. I know that um, I've had, I, I have at the moment a very interesting case where we're looking at, we're suing someone for defamation, um, seeking international relief. Hmm. And so we have had to look at different jurisdictions. Um, if you take the civil law countries working from the Napoleonic Code, for example, Um, there are many, many uh, protections for reputation and honor. Um, there were some famously draconian yeah. protections for insulting a public official and all that sort of thing. So there is definitely relief in civil law jurisdictions for reputation. Um, obviously in Europe, uh, we've got Article 8, haven't we? So that privacy, which also protects reputation now, that's been made clear Article 8 extends to reputation as well as privacy. And so, um, anyway, there, there, you know, yes, it is a traditional English um, <laughs> common law cause of action. Um, and, you know, it's been reformed many, many times. So the law would get to a certain point and they'll codify it. And then it continues to grow in the common law and then they codify again. And they've just done that recently with the new 2013 Defamation Act. Um, they codified the Reynolds defense. I don't know if you know, this new defense of responsible journalism. Mm -hmm. It's a public interest defense. So basically, uh, I love English defamation law because it's so historical and it's so fascinating. Like everything. <laughs> But, you know, if you think about it, you know, it's like, think of Charles II and, you know, the pamphleteers. You know, they wanted, that was, it, there was sedition, blasphemy and defamation. And they wanted to catch everybody. You know, they wanted to catch the coachman, the printer, the, the yeah, yeah, horseman, yeah. everybody. So, and that's why we have such wide liability. And then you have to go, are they a primary publisher? author, editor, or publisher, or those secondary publisher, distributor, printer, um, deliverer, or whatever, those people can show, show that they didn't know the content, or innocent dissemination, basically. Because um, most of them would have been illiterate, so they wouldn't even have been able to read, right? Um, so anyway, it's interesting how these things come forward. And of course now, you know, we debate, is the platform... You know, is the search engine, is the platform, are they a primary publisher here or are they a secondary publisher? There was a case against Facebook in Australia just uh, recently and they said Facebook was a primary publisher. 
of someone else's user-generated content. Mm. Um, you know, about the Delphi case, I'm yeah. sure, as well. So, I mean, Delphi's quite interesting because they said it was hate speech, but under English approach, it could arguably be mere vulgar abuse. Um, but in any event, um, yeah, I do a lot of work in intermediary liability, and often you are looking at these sort of concepts, you know, primary publisher or secondary publisher, and, um, uh, you know, the underst- you know, the... The knowledge that comes from the defamation approach is really, really useful. But defamation law is just fun and fascinating. One of the reasons that I love it, I always tell the story, is that it's so document light. You know, I used to run cases about Russian oil companies and things, and I'd have rooms full of documents. And now I say to people, I love defamation. Often there's only one document, the email, you know, the defamatory email, and that's it. So what I found is that as my cases in commercial arbitration and so forth they got bigger and bigger, they got legally less interesting. There's only two legal questions in international arbitration usually. Was there a misrepresentation? Was there a breach of contract? Mm. So factually very simple, factually very complicated. Like you may have all kinds of details of the business, that you, you know, all kinds of rooms full of documents about the consolidation and all the subsidiaries and the nature of the business and the promises made and all the performance anyway in defamation you're going to have very very complex legal questions but the facts are usually very straightforward mm-hmm. um, some questions in defamation are very difficult for example you know you can't require anyone to prove the truth of an opinion of a value judgment and choosing between fact and value judgment or comment as we call it it's extremely difficult and it's interesting because even the appellate courts you know the further you go up the courts even the courts will differ experienced defamation judges also routinely get it wrong about what is fact that you know you might have to prove true as a defense and what is what is comment or opinion which you have to prove a different defense for honest opinion needs to be based on true or privileged facts. You just need to have an honest person could have held the belief and so forth. So anyway, the issues that come up in defamation are, I mean... Complex. So complex um, and fascinating and interesting and everything evolving over time. Um, You know, for example, um, you know, the responsibility for user-generated content is still one of those sort of questions. And there was an old case. Um, someone had put something on... It's Byrne and Dean. Um, and someone had put something on the notice board of a golf club. And the golf club knew it was there and they had the power to remove it, but they didn't. And anyway, this is the case that basically suggests that, for example, a search engine could be responsible for material that wasn't removed after receiving notice and so forth. So, you know, we're dealing with, you know, trying to take common law concepts and make them relevant to the present. Um, but do you see? Well, I don't. I don't know this case in particular, but I think that uh, Google or Facebook would argue that it's not the same, because how do you put? Pol- you can police one little square of your billboard, but policing the whole traffic that goes through your. Well, that's right. I mean, you can't moderate. You can't be expected to moderate it all. One of the c- cases, um, I think it was the Tamsin Tamis case. They said. Maybe the analogy—it's like it's a whiteboard or a or a, like a wall that gets graffitied every night. You know, they can clean it, but are they legally obliged to? 
But actually, after we had all the blocking blocking order cases um, in the United Kingdom, um, the Newbins case, Newbins 1 and Newbins 2, I don't know if you followed those cases, mm-hmm. and there's been a whole series of them. Basically, the principles evolved pretty clearly, and this is true of European law too. Um, anybody, even a mere conduit, can become liable after notice. Um, and that goes for... Um, information location agents or search engines as well. Um, that's a pretty clearly established principle now. Um, for a long time that wasn't thought to be the position with mere conduits, but mm. yeah. Intermediary liability, I do a lot of this sort of work. You know, it's a shifting sand, nothing's that clear. Yeah. Um, we're still, you know, we're still finding our way forward, yeah. Uh, was was you getting into this area motivated because you said that you wanted to be a, you were deciding if you wanted to be a lawyer or a journalist? Was that uh, uh-huh. what got you into this area? Well, it's funny you say that because um, it was actually, I was like I said, I was in New York in 2000 when the internet bubble was happening and I could see what was going on. They were passing the DMCA and I was like, oh my gosh. And then I came back to Europe, to Brussels, and the e-commerce directive was going through and I didn't think anyone realized what it was doing. And I was like, oh, this is the DMCA, but it's horizontal. Mm. And I wrote an article about it and then I did a lot of work in the field after that. So I just got into it by accident. But that interest plus the domain they were... Anyway, it led me to defamation, and then I became a newspaper lawyer for the last three or four years. You know, I've been working on the newspapers doing pre-publication work for the English tabloids, um, which is great, because in private practice, you may spend, you know, you might spend a couple of hours legaling an article, but if you're a newspaper lawyer, you've read 800 articles in those three hours before that paper goes out, you know? Um, So it brings a lot of focus, and also industry... Um, again, it's just specializing and specializing and specializing. So you're refining your skills um, and using them in different concepts. So I think, I, as I said, I just follow my nose and something interesting happens and I have the freedom to explore it. And, and then that leads to expertise and things that you actually find interesting. Uh, I was, well, since you mentioned the newspapers, for the longest time, the, the, the newspapers were really powerful. They could, and they were really important for government and for civil society and for everything. Then it seemed that after many years that power decreased and now they're also, they're coming back, but I don't know, something changed. It's not like it used to be in Watergate uh, days where the, the journalists were like the heroes. Now, I don't know if it's the case I mean, I do see a comeback, but I don't know if we're there yet. Do you see this? Maybe that's um, that's a very interesting thing. I think, I mean, you know, the maybe we have to distinguish between the position in the United States and the position in the UK. I mean, the British press is certainly very strong still um, and alive and well. You know, I you know. I mean, has all of the mainstream media suffered um, a loss of confidence by the general public, in particular by younger generations? Are they are they less trusting of it? I mean, you know, it's a complex question. If you look at the BBC, I mean, you know, the BBC is something particular, isn't yes. it? I mean, and there are still people who remember when everything you heard on the BBC could take is absolute gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why the BBC... Um, um, 
code. I mean, now they're on the Ofcom code, but I mean, it used, you know, that's why they have things like due impartiality in news, right? Because that was what it was expected that they would they would be impartial, um, and they're obviously accurate and everything else. Um, so, you know, that's how that situation evolved. I mean, people like Ofcom is very sophisticated. I mean, they realise that younger generations don't have that expectation. And that as long as there's transparency, they're perfectly sophisticated enough to understand where they're being given a view that's quite partisan. But I'm sure you realise that in the, in, the, in the UK, the print press has always been completely partisan. There was never any restriction on, on them in terms of impartiality, as opposed to the broadcasters. And that was because the power of the broadcast, the, the political power of the broadcast and the older generations who believed everything they heard on television, right? Yeah. So that's why it was so highly regulated, and there had to be due impartiality, but we've never had due impartiality in the print press. So there was a different code for the print press than the broadcast. And, of course, now we've got convergence and everybody's online. You know, there are issues arising about how to best regulate, but at the moment that hasn't been entirely worked out. Um, the, The broadcasters in the UK got very cross because... They were highly regulated now under the Ofcom code. Um, taste had taste and decency, you know, due impartiality, all this sort of thing. And then anyone can publish anything they like or broadcast anything they like on the internet, which is why we've got now the Audiovisual Media Services Directive. So, program-like materials have a light touch regulatory framework. Light touch. Um, so you know, just it's, so everything's coming from its historical position. And, you know, the regulatory convergence hasn't quite happened. We've still got separate regulatory systems in the UK anyway. So, um, I mean, look, it was a long time coming, even technological convergence, which we kept going to conferences and hearing about for about 10 years, right? And then finally, you know, you get something like Netflix and you're like, oh, here's convergence. It's here, you know? Um, But it hasn't quite happened in a regulatory way. But, yes, you imagine that all regulators will be dissolved and there'll just be one. And, I mean, that's kind of where we're going. And it is arguably Ofcom. But for a long time, the big issue with the Internet was, well, we don't want it to be regulated like pre-watershed television. We don't want it regulated to a child safety standard, right? And so there was a lot of resistance to having Ofcom have a role in Internet regulation as such. Mm. It's kind of broken down now a bit. Um, and off, also, the government with its new, it's got brand new online harms white paper, and there are new proposals right now for, you know, we're in Web 03, and, you know, there's a call everywhere for more responsibility from the platforms and a different approach and so forth. So, you know, there was the look, they were looking at the general duty of care, which fortunately they've thrown out. Um, but it looks like Ofcom is going to be the default backstop regulator as well. Um, anyway, we just in, in, we live in interesting times. But, uh, I mean, the, you're talking about the regulation, but I'm also talking about the power of, of the media. I don't know, it seems to be diffused. It, it used to be, well, certainly it was concentrated, but... Even though you read about these stories like the Panama Papers uh, and all of this, but they don't seem to have the the same effect 
across uh, and that, that well, I don't know that's my impression I don't know if you yeah I was on the news desk when the Panama Papers um, story broke and I had some difficulty explaining to some of the journalists that there were also legitimate reasons to use offshore jurisdictions and holding companies and that you know not everyone could be tarred with the same brush um, um, look, I think you know it's part of the issue about the fact that the media is no longer accredited and professional. There are citizen journalists everywhere, and so you can say that the power of the media has been dissipated mm. or uh, is more widely distributed, um, um, and that's probably a good thing. Um, so I think it may be to do with that. Um, anyone who can harness, you know, people... People can achieve mass publication by harnessing humour and excellent content, right? So I suppose the papers have to share. They have to, you know, they now share share their platform with anyone who can earn, you know, um, the the hits basically. Um, you know, the, the the press is still extremely powerful. Yes, I, I think that, that. Well, I don't know much about the situation in the UK, but I think that's, well, the UK, I think, has been one of the leaders in this uh, in this aspect, so maybe in the UK there, it's still that, but I, I do sense it across the world, and like in the cases in the US and in other places, it's it has lost some of, of that power. I suppose that might be about readership, that, you know, there's like, well, we know that the industry is very much concerned for its future. Yeah. Um, and that's why you know it's trying very hard to evolve. And it's also interesting because the, the judges always mention that. So if you read the European Court of Human Rights cases, um, or even an English judgment, the judges will also say we have there's got to be a margin of appreciation because without the press we won't have democracy. Yeah. You know they really are. It is so crucial. And so, and this is why. You know the market leader, of course, is the Daily Mail, and they've got a lot of entertainment and you know celebrity kind of stuff, and that's that makes people read news stories, right? So it, and it works, and it's free online, and you know um, anyway, yeah, engaging a younger readership who would never pick up a paper or don't have the habit of newspaper reading, um, I, I guess that's a challenge. Um, yeah. so they seem to be meeting this challenge. I mean, not everyone will survive. There have been so many predictions about what's, you know, what model will make it to the future. Um, I'm not sure I can really add, add to that. But, um, yeah. It's interesting. I always say to young people who are interested in getting into the field, being journalists or working in the media, I'm like, go and work in the old version before it disappears, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Because in a way, it will help you understand the new model or you'll be able to think, well, what used to happen, you know? Yeah, yeah, what you're saying is true. I remember I used to pick up the newspaper and it was not so long ago, but my daughters, they would never do that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, thank you very much for, for your time. I really enjoyed this uh, conversation. Is there anything else you want to... Not at all. Thank you very much for ha having me. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and um, thank you for being very uh, gentlemanly. You didn't ask me any awkward or difficult <laughs> questions. And uh, I hope I didn't do too much talk. Well, I did do a lot of talking. But, no, but it was um, great. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you very much.